I want to talk about, we're, we're in a series on the book of Haggai, and we've been talking about it last week. We started in on the first chapter. It's only two chapters. It's very short. Um, last week, we talked about the, the, the people of Israel. God had told them, if you disobey me, I'm just trying to keep you from doing this. I love you so much. Don't do this, and this won't happen. But if you keep disobeying me, if you keep worshiping other gods, other nations are going to come, and they're going to take you over, and they're going to take you away. And, and he warned them, and he warned the northern part of the nation, and they got taken away. And then he warned the southern part of the nation, and they repented for a little bit and got held it off. But then they just went right back to it. You ever have that happen? You know, you get yourself in trouble, and you, and you, and you suddenly just say, oh, I got to stop doing it. Ah, okay, 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 I'm really sorry, okay. And things kind of even out, and then you just start sliding right back towards it. That's, that's what happened. So then the Babylonians came, and they took the, the southern kingdom, and, but God told them, he told them, even before this, what we're at, he told them, I am with you in this. I will go with you. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to be taken captive into this nation, and I am going to bring you back. And he does. And there's uh, a number of books in the Old Testament, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai. They're talking about this, where these people came back. And the first group of people that came back were 50,000 people. They came back, and their job was to rebuild uh, to rebuild the temple, get the city ready to be inhabited, start building, get crops planted. But remember, and, and this is the thing that's hard for us to totally understand, the most important thing was the temple for them. You know, that was the most important thing. And there's reasons for this because that symbolized the presence of God in their midst. That symbolized that when the temple was done, people would come back, the return would happen. And hundreds of thousands of Jews would come back for that temple. This is what it symbolized. This is what it meant to them. It meant the presence of God. It meant that there would suddenly be this testimony to God for all the other Jews, but for the whole world. But even for the whole world. This was huge to them. This was huge. And last week we looked at it. Uh, what, what happened? You know, they started getting some persecution and, uh, and they gave up. They quit. And Fifteen years later, God sends Haggai. And he, first of all, there's the accusation. We talked about that. Basically, he's telling them, you, you're making time for luxury homes, and you can't make time for me. You've, you've, you've lost it. You, you've, you've lost your priorities. And they, what, even worse was they, the way they phrased it, it was God's fault that they quit. God, it must not be his time. That's what it is. God's telling us to wait. That's what we'll do, and we'll be comfortable as we do it. Right? So it showed what their priorities were. And last week we looked also at there was an admonition. God told them, consider your ways. God gave them this, and he did it twice. He said, you better start thinking. Think about what you're doing. Think about what's important. And that's a good thing for us to do. What's important in life? Every once in a while, just to stop. What's dominating my thought life? What's dominating my time? Now, what's important? What should be? And so God's accusation rings out to them, your name and your kingdom is more important to me than mine. And then he tells them, you better consider what you're doing because this is, this is the wrong road. And then their response, they repented, they obeyed God. Their hearts were stirred and they started to work on the temple. They got to it. I mean, they were excited. And then we come to Haggai chapter two. And I'm gonna read that to you, verses one through nine. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone if you have it, or you can just listen. Here we go. And there's two important people here. Zerubbabel, who is the governor, who interestingly has kingly roots and is in the line of Christ. He's in Jesus' genealogy. Zerubbabel, the governor, 
and Joshua the high priest because they're the leaders. And so God's going to speak to the leaders and the people. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, uh, the governor of Judah, to Joshua the high priest and the remnant of the people. Asked him, who is, who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted, covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord God Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord God Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like that's a lot of Lord Almighty's, right? Why is it that way? This is very typical, this is very typical in Hebrew writing. Right? They repeat things because the, what is going on there when he's repeating it? He says, I want you to understand God himself is speaking these words to you. God himself is speaking these words to you. He's using a prophet, but this is words from God. You better listen. All right? So the temple's incredibly important. They'd gotten stirred up, they'd gotten excited. They've been working, and, and, and Haggai is interesting. He, he gives exact dates, and it, when you plot it out against the Hebrew calendar, else against the calendar, we, you can name the day that all these things are happening. He's very specific about that. And so we know it's been about three and a half weeks. And at the end of those three and a half weeks, right where we're at in this chapter, they are doing two things. First of all, the foundation has been finished. It's ready for the, the, the building to be erected. And second of all, they're at the end of a Great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It's a, the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast they, 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 uh, they celebrated to remember how they came out of Egypt and, and into what wandered in the wilderness. And so they would call it also the Feast of Booths because they would build these, they called them booths, just a little, just a little uh, like a lean-to or you know, just a, a shelter, and they would eat and sleep in them to, as part of the, to remember, to remember what God had done to remember that God had brought them out of slavery and led them to the promised land. They are remembering, and they're reliving this blessing. And it's very special right now. Why? Because it's happened again. They were enslaved by the Babylonians, and now they've been freed. God said, I told you I was going to bring you back, and he brought them back. And so they finish this foundation, and they're in this celebration, and suddenly there's a problem. You ever have a time where things are going great, you're really excited, and something happens, just causes you to crash emotionally? This is, I, one time, when I was in college, I played soccer, and uh, in one game, I scored my first hat trick. I scored a hat trick, and, and I was so excited. I mean, it's this kind of thing. You know, the team gets back into the, into the locker room afterwards, and we're all like, yeah, and the coach is going, play of the game. Bob Mosley, yeah, yeah, you know, and they give me the ball, and the coach signed it, and all like this, and, and it's just like, yes, I'm basking in the glow of my glory, and, um, and so we're kind of getting ready, and this guy comes up, and he kind of 
kind of half joking. You know, people, when they want to really crush you, they start half joking. And uh, he says, you know, if it wasn't for all the work, I mean, basically, two of those goals were tap-ins. And for all the work I did on that second one, to, to get it to you right in front of the goal, and what Lonnie did on the third one, where all, you could have just stood there and it would have bounced off you and gone in. So, I mean, you know, don't let it go to your head. And I was just like, man, I'd like to go to your head right now. I just feel, I just, that, you know, that, that it, I was so excited and it just crushes you, right? It just crushes you. And then what do you do? You try to justify yourself. I'm sitting there thinking, oh yeah, right. You didn't have to fight that giant center back to get around him so I could tap in that second goal. Yeah, and I saw that goalie coming on the third goal and he crushed me after I tapped it in. Yeah, what about that? Eh, you know, and you get that. And so what happens? The, the, the joy's gone. The joy is gone. And, and we're looking at something, okay, this is a lot bigger than that. That's maybe kind of a small, but this is, this is what is going on in this passage. I want you to see this now. The discouragement of the people. And look especially here, he says in uh, verse three, he's talking to all the people. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Okay, he's saying, show of hands, who remembers Solomon's temple? Now there are some people there who would remember Solomon's temple. There are some of the older people who would remember. Show of hands, who saw? Yep, we saw. And he says to them, how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? What's going on? God is calling out some people because they're saying, what? This is it? Now, we have other, uh, other passages that talk about this. Um, and in Ezra chapter three, listen to this. And all the people, the people were, were shouting with praise because the foundation was finished but the older priests and the Levites and some of the family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. What's going on? They're going, it's a shack. This is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. What are we doing? This is not that great. You guys are excited for that? You ever seen that, that, how that can happen to people? And that can, that can crush your spirit. And, and Scripture tells us, and Ezra tells us what happens. What happens afterwards? All the people, the younger people, the people who are doing the work, right? The people who are doing the work, they're like, yeah, yeah, what, what? Uh, uh. Oh, well, then what's the use? I quit. They all started wanting to quit. And, and this is what's going on. And God is calling these people out. He goes, okay, show of hands. Who's seen it? We've seen it. Doesn't it seem like a shack to you? Yes, it does. He's calling them out. And here's what we need to remember in this culture. This is really key where you understand culture. In that time, in that culture, old people were revered. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> in that time, old people... And, and here's why, you know, people didn't live as long and, and, and people, all, you know, all the, the, the diseases and all that kind of stuff. So people who made it into their 50s and 60s and 70s, there was this sense, it was kind of like, you know, how they used to think that if someone was, had, was ill or had a disease, it was God punishing them. If you lived to be old, it was because God, you're, sp you're special. God has blessed you. You must be special. So what you say goes. So th this is why you got to understand that because 
these old people are suddenly discouraged and it just runs rampant. That wouldn't happen as much in our day, right? I mean, when I was young, 40 years ago, I thought old people were idiots. Now, I'm like, we so smart, right? We so, <laughs> we so smart. I don't know why I said it that way. I sound like Jar Jar Bings, right? We so smart, yeah, right. We're so smart. <laughs> I get up here and tell you how grammar is important, and then I just butcher the English language. Yes, that's what I love. Those, those people, they, they, the old, what the old people said, go. It would go. It was, it was like the law. And they looked at the foundation, and they said, this is so small. This is not pleasing to God. You, you, you just can hear it, right? You can hear it. You can hear them going, back when we were kids... They go, oh, here we go. Have you ever had someone do that to you? You get all excited and they just ruin it? That's what happens. Ezra says they became discouraged. They decide to quit. What were they doing? They were comparing the new temple to the old temple. And let me tell you something. Anytime you start comparing, you're in dangerous, a dangerous area. I, I, I've said this before, and it's comparison is the death of joy. Because what happens? You compare yourself. Maybe you compare yourself to someone and you go, oh, I'm better. I'm wait. Look at oh, that guy's done. He's a loser. She's oh, wow. And so now what have you become? You've become this elitist jerk that feels like you're better than others. You're proud. What if you say, oh, uh, that guy's so awesome or she's just amazing. I, now what have you done? You've pummeled yourself in the ground and made yourself nothing like you're not worth any, compared to this person. Uh, it kills joy either way you go. Comparison is the death of joy. And this can happen in our life. This can happen in a church. This can happen in a marriage. This can happen to a child. We have to be careful. And I know, I, you know well, I'm one of those old guys and I may sound like it, but this is why social media can be so destructive. It really can. Because no one puts their real baggage online. Sometimes people are sound like they're being honest, but there's always some sort of a spin to it. You never see this. You'll never see someone post, look, my husband and I, we just had this huge fight. He says he thinks he regrets marrying me. Here are some of the names we called each other. No one posts that online, right? No one posts that online. You never, see, you never see a young person say, post, my parents think I'm worthless and dumb. Hashtag living the life, right? You never see that. You don't see that. Why? Because people don't put, what do they post? They post generally, it's very positive. And even when they post their troubles, it spins out to be positive for them. And it can just make you feel like I'm nothing, I'm no, nobody. So there's two problems here they're doing that is applicable for us today. First of all, they're just looking back and comparing. And second of all, they've started complaining. They're being very negative and complaining. And that spreads like a cancer. So the looking back, you know, this can kill people. When people talk in the past tense all the time, it, like nothing's happening now, that's a bad sign. If we can only look back and not celebrate what is happening now and look at the great things that God is doing or will do, <clears throat> that's like your spiritual engine light coming on and telling you there's serious issues here. There's serious issues. Now, God does command us to remember, right? He's not like God says, never look back. 
The Old Testament feasts, what are they about? They're about remembering. Our celebration of communion, what is it about? Do this in remembrance of me. It's about remembering, right? But here's the thing. The feasts were to reinvigorate the people of God, to move forward. Look what God did in the past. Let's go. That's what it was about. That's why God instituted those feasts, to continue serving him, to continue trusting him. Look at what God's done in the past. We can trust him now. We can trust him in the future. That was the point of remembering. Even in communion, one of the things Paul says, yes, do this in remembrance of me, but then what does he say? And when you take communion, you proclaim. You proclaim Jesus Christ. That's forward. That's not backwards. That's forward. And so that's the whole point. And that's that problem when we look back and compare. The other problem is letting our attitude, getting an attitude and then letting it spread and ruin others. They were discouraged by the size of the temple. They complained. The rest of the people listened to them because they looked up to them and they said, yeah, maybe this isn't worth it. And the work stops. Discontent spreads and grows. And this is important for us in a family, in a church, anywhere. Anywhere you happen to be, this will grow. Paul talks about this. Paul talks about this. He calls it the root of bitterness. It's a really key way of looking at it. Because, you know, when you go, not too long ago, I was helping someone pull a, uh, a bush out of their, out of their uh, front yard, right? So we're cutting away, cutting away. And all of a sudden, I'm going, man, these roots go deep. And they go far. And there's no sign. It's just a little bush. Didn't look like that much. The roots are what are so key. And a root of bitterness, it goes deep and it goes far, and oftentimes it's unseen. And so Paul says to be careful about that. Um, uh, my favorite illustration, this is Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, God says, there are six things I hate. And he says, no, there's seven that are an abomination to me. And this is a, a typical uh, um, ancient Near Eastern way of, of emphasizing something. When you say there's six and know there's seven, what you're saying is the six are going to lead to the biggest one. The biggest one is the seventh one. And he lists things off, but the seventh one, what God, think about this, what God hates most of everything, he says, is a person who spreads discontent, a person who spreads, you know, evil, person who, whose, whose words go out and pollute and condemn and bring negativity to people all around them. He says those who, especially in that, in that he uses the phrase, those who spread uh, uh, discontent among, among the people of God. God says, I hate that. I hate that. So they're looking back and comparing they're complaining. They're being very negative. And, you know, we can always find things to complain about. It's very easy to find something for, uh, for people to complain about at a church. Just do things different one time. <laughs> Just do things different one time. And people are like, what? 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 Years and years ago, when we first started here, we, once or twice, we put the coffee in the foyer. Oh, Bob, that is, what, what are you doing? No, this is not a good idea. I'm like, 
Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make sure the coffee is in the worship area. He didn't say that. This is not a command. You know, what is going on here? Change the seating arrangement. Ooh, just happened. Hmm, yes. People find things to complain about, where the coffee's served, what the pastor wears. How can you afford all those cool shoes, right? <laughs> people complain, complain about the music. People complain, there's too much history in the sermons. People can, there's not enough history in the sermons. Boy, do I sound like a negative complainer myself, right? <laughs> this is just like all about me. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote this down. Um, Someone sits in the chair I usually sit in, you know? So just, we can find all kinds of things to complain about. We can find all kinds of, and, and, and listen, I fight this all the time. I'm older, and I get set in my ways. I understand that. And I'm telling you, I, I don't want my spiritual life to be like that. I don't want my walk with Jesus Christ to get old and stale and decrepit. <laughs> you know, I don't want that. I don't want that. So here's, here's what's going on. He's told them this. Now, what's the answer for this? What's the answer for when we get discouraged, when we get upset, and we want to complain? Here it is. He sees the discouragement of the people, and God points it out, and then God answers. His answer to their discouragement. He says, but now, this moment, right now, Zerubbabel, be strong, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedak. Uh, the high priest. Be strong, all you people. He starts at the top and he works right down to everybody. The governor, the high priest, and all the people. He says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Do not fear. So four things, look at this. He tells them to be strong. He tells them to keep working. He tells them, I am with you in this. And he tells them, do not be afraid. That's how we deal with those, those kind of situations. Be strong. This exhortation is do not falter, it means. And he starts with the top. He says, every one of you needs to be strong. You're, and, and I think this is the key when he names the governor and the high priest. And then he names, he says, all the people of the land which is an interesting phrase, the people of the land. He says, you are the people. This, this is your land. You need to start owning it. Right? He's, he tells them all, be strong. You're all in this together. And he says, now work. Now work. Get back to it. Get back to it. This is, get your hands busy. And I know they're thinking, well, how can we do that? I mean, we're struggling. You know, people are against us. This is really hard. And so God gives them. The third one, I am with you in this. I am walking with you in this. You are not alone. It is not you against all those people. It's you and me. Now the odds are on your side. And God says, I'm with, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm pleased with. My spirit remains among you. Yeah, although I know they can be thinking, you seem far away. All this, all this stuff is happening. And he's saying, no, I'm right here with you. I never left. And then the fourth one he says is, fear not. See, if you think about it, when you're afraid of something, when you fear something, you've put your faith in something other than God. You, you, you see something or somebody or whatever it may be, and you start to fear it. You go, this is so big. This looks too big. 
So I need alternatives to trust. I need alternatives to have faith in. So I need to look to this or look to this or look to this. That's what's going on when you fear. And God is saying, I'm calling you to be faithful, even when it doesn't look like it's working out. God brings up his covenant with them. It's from the Exodus when God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's telling them, I am with you in this. He's telling us, I'm with you in this. I don't know what everyone's going through in this room. There are some people, you may be having some serious difficulties. And it may be that you haven't told anyone. You can't tell. You don't have anyone to tell. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to express it. And it's eating you alive. And you go, I'm alone in this. And God is saying, no, you're not. I'm with you. If you are following me, I am with you in this. You are never alone. He brings up his covenant. He tells them I'm with you. He's telling them, you are not inadequate because you have me. And this is not too small because this is what I want. This is what I want. Now build it. Now get to work. It's very interesting, the parallel here is very close. When David talked to Solomon about building God's temple, Solomon's temple, that grand and glorious temple, David repeated some of these exact same phrases. Any Jewish person in that day would have gone, that's David. That's David talking to Solomon. That's what Haggai's telling us. That's what God's telling us. Just like David told Solomon, well, let's get after it. And so he tells them, I want you to be faithful no matter what. No matter what God has you do. Because you may be doing something incredibly small or incredibly great. God says, my key is faithfulness. Be faithful in it. I saw this, read this illustration a while back. A big cathedrals being built in Europe. And they walked up to a bricklayer, and uh, a, a brick maker actually, because they would make them right there on site. And he said, well, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm making brick for that wall over there. And they went over to the next guy and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a grand and glorious cathedral to the glory of God. They're both doing the same job, but they're not both doing the same job. There's a whole difference there, isn't there? Whole difference. And you may be doing something incredibly simple and incredibly small, but God uses it. He says, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be faithful because you might just be making bricks for an incredible cathedral. And some of you are getting older. (laughs) Some of us are getting older. Our abilities are diminishing. Our strength is not what it was. Our health is not what it was. And he's saying, don't quit. Do not stop. Do not quit. Keep working and loving and sharing. Keep pursuing Jesus as the center of your life. I'm not done with you yet. And some of you are young. And there's lots of things competing for your energy and your time and your attention. And Jesus says, I want to be the center of your life. I want to do great things with your life. Do not waste time, just like chapter one. Do not waste time on things that are not important. Figure out what's important and go for it. Want it. You have great potential to impact the world for Jesus Christ. But for all of us, be strong. Keep working. I'm with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The third one, third point. The discouragement, they were discouraged. God's answer to their discouragement, now God's vision for the future. Now God's going to say something here. This is, this is, this is a, re- a prophecy, like a, a, re- a revelation, a revelation, a re- revelation, 
and, and um, it is going to hint at things to come. And it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations. And that's a key phrase there. The desire of nations is a phrase that's related to Jesus Christ. What is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Then in verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. He says some interesting thing. He says the desire of nations is going to come. It's going to shake the world. It's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. And it's going to come. And then he says, the glory of this shack in your eyes, this shack is going to be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple at its finest moment with the gold and the diamonds and the, and the silver and all the beauty. This is going to, why? Why? Because this temple, this shack that you call it, Jesus is going to walk into. And Jesus is going to say to anyone who thirsts, I have water of life for you. For anyone, I have salvation. Jesus, here they're hearing something. I have something, I have something for you you can't imagine. Glory that's greater than the former. There will be a glory in this temple that's greater than Solomon's. And it will bring, he says at the end of it, it will grant peace. This is the Hebrew word shalom. This is a really important word for us to kind of get a little grip on. And, and uh, I did a, you know, just a kind of rudimentary word study. The root of the word shalom in Hebrew is shalom. And it's a word that's used oftentimes, it's used in Exodus a number of times. It talks about when there are differences between people, maybe someone injures another person or maybe somebody steals from another person and how we deal with that. How do we make that right? This whole, and it brings in, you know, ideas of forgiveness and things like that. But it's, it's translated that you have to make it good or you have to pay or you have to make full restitution or you have to restore. You have to make it whole. You have to make that person whole. If you injure someone, say you, say you, you poke out their eye, you have to reimburse them in a way that makes, in a sense, makes them whole. This is where our judicial system gets this idea of you get a proportion of money for what your life could have been if the accident had not happened. It's from this. It's from shalom. And so it has this idea of making whole, making full restitution. And I love that idea. Because when we start talking about making someone whole or bringing full restitution, those are words that apply to Jesus Christ. And when we say that's the root word of shalom, shalom is this peace. It's this peace where someone's been made whole. It's this peace where restitution has been made. It's a completeness. It's a restoration of what we were made for. And the thing is, always shalom always comes with a price. It's all wrapped up in this word. And so this temple, this shack, you guys, he's saying you guys call it. Now Herod's gonna come, he's gonna trick it out, and he's gonna, he's gonna bling it up some, but it's gonna still be a lot of the same basic foundation. This temple, the Son of God is gonna come and offer salvation, wholeness, Shalom, peace with God, because this man, Jesus, is going to make restitution. He's going to make a payment. He's going to pay a debt. 
This man is going to say, if anyone does not have shalom, come to me and I will give it to you. And then this man, Jesus, will die on a hill overlooking this temple, this temple. He will purchase this peace we so desperately need. When a person recognizes their need for peace, when a person recognizes that they're a sinner and they see that Jesus paid the debt, he paid the price that we should pay for our sins and accepts Jesus as their Savior, they are granted a peace with God. A peace that transcends, that the world cannot give. The world cannot give you peace with God. Only God can do that freely. A peace that affects your mind, your emotions, your spiritual well-being as a person. This little shack of a temple, God is saying, this is an integral part of my plan for my kingdom to reach the whole world. And so suddenly, something that seems very inadequate and small has a greater worth than you can imagine. This is such an important point for us to understand. Such an important point for us to think through. What seems inadequate and small can have an impact greater than you could ever know. We talked about this last week. Something you say or do years ago could bear fruit that you would not even know about, except that someone writes you and tells you about what happened four years ago unbeknownst to you. This is how God works. So, four quick points. Discouragement will come. It's going to come. It's part of life. It's a part of living in this world, right? We just, what we have to do is, we have to know how to respond. How we respond is key. We need to fight the temptation to look back and fight the temptation to decide uh, that I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm going to give up. Fight the temptation to look back and reevaluate what we thought we were true, was true. Fight the temptation to compare because it only leads to bitterness. Third, we need to take our eyes off of our circumstances and fix them firmly on God. This text is all about that. They have to get their eyes off their circumstances and fix their eyes on God because he's going to do something incredible and look at him. Look and keep looking at him. The fourth one, keep working. Even seemingly small things can have huge consequences. We are here for a short time. And so we need to invest in his eternal kingdom because he is faithful. God is with us. He promises that. In your most difficult times, he's with you. In your happiest times, he's with you. And in every time in between, he walks with you. And anything that happens in our lives, God can ultimately use for good. He can do that. He says he does that. I don't know how it works. I don't know how he does it all the time. But he does. He tells us that. And so he says, trust me. Walk with me. Don't get discouraged. Follow. Be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this book this little book, this little book that it can have such an impact on our lives that points to what is so important on this earth. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be like these people, to listen and to obey, to repent and turn and move and work 
and serve and love and experience the peace that you bring to those who follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.